0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast where we see something new in cinemas and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or the same genre. Sometimes we give a little love to the work of an actor lead or supporting. My name's Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. My blog is called Flaw on the Iris and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca.
1: And my name's Stephen Cook and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire network here in Halifax.
0: Today, on this episode number 150, Big 150, Stephen, we're talking about wartime thrillers, specifically from World War II. We're going to be checking out some new ones, including one that's just recently dropped on Netflix called Operation Mincemeat, and we're going to go back to the war to watch some movies and talk about some movies that were actually made during World War II. That's all coming up in the next hour here on Lens Me Your Ears.
1: Well, welcome back to Lend Me Your Ears, and we are looking at Second World War thrillers, some films dating back to the days of the Second World War itself, and and some of the stories that were told years after the fact, including a couple that couldn't be told because of the Official Secrets Act, uh, and and stories that were kind of kept under wraps for for years and years and years after the war. And uh, there's a lot of great stories out there associated with the the bravery, the adventures, the subterfuge involved in um, keeping the free world free uh, back in the 1930s and 40s. And, and we certainly uncovered a lot of stories uh, of that ilk uh, while getting ready for this episode, didn't we, Carson?
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's funny, even the ones where they are told from the Germans' perspective. And there are at least one example of those that we're going to be talking about today, uh, which is interesting. Uh, you know, and that's not... Entirely unprecedented, um, but yeah, the the one that is new and available now, as I mentioned, Operation Mince Meat, um, which I think is kind of a terrible title, but that's fine. <laughs> you know what you're getting. I mean, you just have to look at the poster, look at the imagery. You know what this is. It's directed by John Madden, written by Michelle Ashford, based on a book by Ben McIntyre, and it is in many ways a conventional genre picture, the kind of movie they've been making. Well. For seventy, eighty 80 years, uh, it's the model of a tweedy British war picture, a variation on movies, you know, that we've been watching since we were kids and that were made previous to our arrival in this world. But, you know, in another way, I found it to be an entirely stirring potboiler. You know, it hits most of its targets, and it tells a, a fascinating true-to-life tale. And, you know, some of the movies we're going to be talking about today are actually based on Actual events. Some are lightly fictionalized. Some are heavily fictionalized. But um, yeah, it's this is something I knew nothing about. And it's a it's a movie that focuses on a small team of basement dwelling spies who in 1943 came up with false intelligence to deceive the Nazis about the true plans of the Allied forces to invade Sicily. Uh, now, I'm gonna, the character names are Ewan Montague and Charles Cholmondoli, played uh, <laughs> respectively by Colin Firth and Matthew mcfadden And uh, Montague's he's, he's uh, an elder, you know, uh, big brain in the military. His, he's managing a marriage that's been strained by his duty. The, the prospect of a Nazi invasion of the U.K. sends his Jewish wife, played by Hattie Monahan, uh, and the kids to America. Uh, She's got a mysterious brother, Ivor, Oh, I'm sorry, no, he has a mysterious brother, played by Mark Gaddis, who is used to playing mysterious brothers because he was in Sherlock. That's the first thing I thought of when I saw him. Uh, His loyalties, however, are a little unclear. Um, And then Cholmondeley is under pressure from his mother, who is grieving the death of his brother, and his brother was a war hero, uh, and he died in India, and so... He's trying to get his brother's body, re- reclaim it, and bring it back from India. Right between them is Jean Leslie, played by the wonderful Kelly MacDonald. I can't think of a movie that hasn't been improved by Kelly MacDonald being in it. She is amazing, always. Uh, she becomes essential to their plan, which is to drop a body in the water off the Spanish coast. And it's going to be a corpse, but it's in possession of personal effects and confidential fake documents, which they hope will send Berlin uh on the wrong trail and lure the Nazis away from Sicily. Um, and also on the team, Hester Leggett, played by Penelope Wilson, Wilton, who is going to be familiar to any fan of Downton Abbey. And future James Bond 007 creator Ian Fleming. He's, no, he doesn't have a big part, but he is definitely part of this team. He's played by Johnny Flynn. Uh, amongst them, there are also Admiral John Godfrey, played by the amazing Jason Isaacs, yes. who is entirely serpentine. And, of course, Winston Churchill, uh, played by Simon Russell Beale. This is a great cast. I mean, they are all just kind of like the they could all carry a movie themselves these characters and these actors they've they've got star power they've got charisma and they're great character actors um and what i really enjoyed about the film steven is that right through the first and the second acts how they construct the fiction of major william martin who is this fictional character but they've got the body and they need to put together all the details of his past his love affairs with a woman named pam and his military service um and each character commits to the assembly of this deception and every element reveals something about the contributor these are all writers basically who are taking their personal experience and turning it into fiction for the sake of this plan and that's the part of the film i love the most
1: yeah this uh this this is a a great story and the fact that it's true just seems to make it uh ring that much more um Authentically, uh, it's 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 called Operation Mincemeat because it was already filmed once before in the fifties with uh, with the much better title The Man Who Never Was.
0: Huh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah,
1: and with I think Clifton Webb, maybe I'm trying to think uh, who was in it, but uh, and it was based on a book of the same name. Geez, um, we should have watched that if I'd known. I would well, you know what? It. I actually tried to find a copy of it, and it's. Uh, it's not available anywhere that I could come <laughs> ah, up with a Ah, too coffee. bad, too bad. So uh, we'll, we'll maybe the second time, next time we get around to a bunch of these films because there's a bunch we didn't get to. So, Sure. Um, but, uh, and, and of course, I think I learned about it from, I think there was a goon show parody of that story that was done by the BBC Radio Comedy Troupe that featured Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan and Harry Seacomb. They did a, a few kind of wartime era um, parodies and spoofs. Uh, they did another one about, uh, there was another film called I Was Monty's Double where they, There was a, you know, they were kind of tricking the Germans with uh, groups of soldiers led by a a Montgomery lookalike in North Africa who was basically, you know, so the Germans would think that Montgomery was going in one direction when in fact it was just his uh, lookalike and uh, the real General Montgomery was going in another direction to get around the Germans flank or whatever in North Africa. So, so there, you know, a lot of these kinds of stories of intrigue, were starting to come to, come to light in the fifties and and, then become part of popular culture. But this one is just, just because of the nature of the subterfuge and how much hinged on this plot working, which is, you know, taking a chance that the body would wash up, that the Germans would eventually find it and find the information that it was carrying and and hopefully direct their attention to greece rather than sicily i mean it, it seems like such a such a nut bar plan and yet it, it did in fact work and and uh, and you really feel the anxiety these characters feel of knowing how much hinges on this fairly uh far-flung idea you know of, of it working and uh, of pulling it off um, and yet, uh, just trying to outthink the Germans in the way that, you know, they get into the minds of the, the, the agents that work in the, in the, uh, bureaus in, in Spain, which is, you know, neutral, but, um, uh, but, but certainly had some fascist leanings and, and uh, trying to, uh. Second-guess uh, everybody and what they do, and then all the different ways that it could possibly go awry um, if it falls into the wrong hands and all that kind of thing. So you really do feel that tension uh, as as we get closer and closer to um, this mission uh, accomplishing what it set out to do. And I, I feel like the uh, the people like Colin Firth and Kelly McDonald really make you believe that that uh, you know
0: the lives really depend on this. Oh, absolutely. And you know this. There's more to this, of course, that could go wrong at many points. We discover that the corpse, which was a, uh, you know, um, I guess a hobo, a vagabond on the streets of London who who uh, passed away through perhaps through misadventure, had a family, had a life, and that comes back to haunt them and him and the people who have this plan. And, uh, you know, there, there's lots of things they while they try to predict the thoughts of the Nazi uh, spy masters – and, and and intelligence, there's lots of things they don't predict and lots of ways in which this can go wrong and almost does. And I, what was a real surprise to me is how the script managed to work in a lot of humor with a very light touch that doesn't overwhelm the dramatic tone. There's a there's a great score. Um, there's a great pace to the editing, like it moves really well. And, and I, I really believe the rec- the sort of recreation of time and place um, and all the suspense, of course, as you mentioned, really works. There are, I would say, a couple of missteps in the third Without being a spoiler, there is a double agent who is revealed that I feel like should have been seeded better. Uh, I didn't see it coming, and I felt like there could have been at least a suggestion of it somewhere. Um, and that's not to say I always see it coming, but there's a way that scripts can, can make someone, you know, a character that you, you recognize who just, you know, just, but in this case, I felt like he came out of nowhere. Uh, and then there's the true nature of Ivor, uh, the Mark Gaddis character who is sort of dangled but never really confirmed. And um, anyway, but none of that is, those. these are, are nitpicking. The, the whole movie I really enjoyed overall.
1: Yeah, I feel like Ivor may have suffered somewhat in the uh, editing process as he's not that crucial to the story. I mean, he's a colorful character. And of course, Mark Gatiss is is always a welcome presence. Uh, and uh, I guess we should point out that uh, director John Madden, of course, is very skilled with historical subject matter. He directed Shakespeare in Love, which of course won an Oscar. And, uh, you know, also made the exotic uh, Marigold Hotel films, which, uh, you know, show his his skill at character-driven comedy, uh, you know, that has real emotional underpinnings to it. And that all really works in this film's favor.
0: Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, it's a film I would have certainly seen in the cinema, but I can understand that getting a, uh, it's more of a low-key sort of home-on-the-couch watch as well, so I can understand why Netflix would scoop it up and... uh and offer it that way. Um, now there was another movie bef- that I wanted, I really wanted you to watch Stephen, because I think you had seen, said you'd seen it before, or maybe you hadn't, but, uh, well, I had not. It's, okay. It's, it was
1: one that I'd wanted to see and it never, I don't think it ever came here. And, and I remember being intrigued in it at the time that it came out. Um, uh, but but never got the chance. And of course, the the home
0: video copies uh, came and went pretty quickly. Yeah, that's Enigma from 2001. And it's definitely a World War II thriller. It's been one of my favorites, enough that I was able to track down a DVD that we watched. Directed by Michael Apted, written by the great Tom Stoppard, adapting a novel by Robert Harris. Now... This is a film that was actually pretty well received at the time, but it seems to have vanished from the cultural conversation. And that might be because it has been diminished. It's in the shadow of Morton Tildum's drama The Imitation Game, which made a splash and earned Oscar nominations, which it's they're basically telling the same story. But Tildum's drama is a much more straight ahead Alan Turing biopic starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing, the British computer science who in World War II, cracked the Nazis Enigma code. That's their communications encryptions at Bletchley Park in the UK. Later in his life, he was convicted for gross indecency for having sustained a homosexual relationship, and a lot of what he did for the British war effort was kind of kept as a secret for many years. Um, Now, that film had a very high profile, like I mentioned. So Enigma, which takes a similar story but fictionalizes it, takes out a lot of that personal stuff, um, is, you know... I guess in the light of the true story, it feels maybe a little bit more shallow or something. I really like Enigma, and I will I will stand up and wave my hand and say Enigma is actually in some ways maybe even more of a gripping spy thriller for its fiction rather than than its its you know need to to tell a true story. But but uh, you know I can understand those who might disagree. Um, So yes, in Enigma, there's no touring. There's Tom Jericho, played by Doug Ray Scott. Uh, He's a heterosexual scientist recovering from a nervous breakdown, returning to Bletchley Park after a month away. turns out it was more than just the stress of decoding Nazi transmission that triggered the breakdown. He was in a relationship with the park's resident femme fatale, Claire, played by Saffron Burroughs, who's really good in this film, Uh, and the resulting heartbreak sent him into a tizzy. So the first act is nicely structured between present, with with Claire having vanished, and frequent flashbacks to the past, the months previous, with Claire and Tom having their fling. And we meet Tom's colleagues at the park, including... Uh, Logie, played by Tom Hollander, Cave, played by Matthew Mcfadden, him again, and Puck, played by Nikolai Koster-Waldau, who, of course, many will recognize as Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. The Nazis have changed their code references for their Enigma machines and making their U-boats fleet efflec- effectively invisible to the Allies in the North Atlantic as the convoy of supply ships steams from the U.S. to Europe, the the analyst team works feverishly to find a way to recrack the shark code, as it's known. And the question hangs in the air. Why did the Nazis choose now to change their encryptions? Does it have anything to do with the disappearance of Claire? Was she a spy? And intelligence officer, Wigram, played by Jeremy Northram, really wants to know. So yeah, Tom launches his own investigation into Claire's whereabouts with some help from Hester, played by Kate Winslet. Who is? I mean, I I laugh at this description, but frumpy roommate to Claire. I mean, <laughs> yes. you know, it's Kate friggin' Winslet. And the only I mean, they put her in glasses and and you know, do her hair up very conventionally, conservatively. But really, it's it's hard to to dis- to make her frumpy. Um. Anyway, and uh, yeah, and then they discover Claire is hiding a handful of intercepted communications. But why? Anyway, all of this I found entirely gripping. Uh, what Stephen? What did you make of it?
1: It was it was a lot of fun. It's it's more of an old fashioned kind of espionage, Second World War thriller kind of story with the with the secret romance and the the woman who may or may not be a traitor and all, all that kind of stuff. It, it's a little more conventional than Operation Mincemeat in that regard, but uh, you know I I kind of enjoyed it for the conventions and uh, it, it it's I think I. Probably preferred the imitation game a little bit better as just as a, on a, as a film, but but this was uh, certainly a lot more uh, of an, kind of an old fashioned story full of daring do and the the kind of unbalanced hero who could crack at any moment uh, That So much depends upon. Uh, I just loved all, the way all these elements kind of came together with this sweeping John Barry score. Speaking oh. of, speaking of uh, James Bond, we've got a James Bond connection there. Um, and, of course, Michael Apted also directed um, uh, a not very good James Bond movie, <laughs> as I recall. Was it, I, 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 was it Tomorrow Never Dies? Was it Tomorrow Never Dies? was it The World comes, is Not Enough? One was of was those it, two. was Die Another Day? No, nope. no, it wasn't Die Another Day. was Die Another Day? Yeah. Well, that I, was right. to was Temori, um. Morrison, yeah. Uh, anyway, but um, yeah. So, so we have a director who did direct a James Bond film. We've got the composer behind uh, the best-known Bond score. So there's that element of it as well. And, and 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 Northam, I feel like he's kind of a surrogate Ian Fleming, this very flamboyant, uh, you know, MI5 uh, investigator who's trying to get to the bottom of things. And he's he's you know, when it, every every scene that he comes into and just elevates every scene this, <laughs> this more uh, outlandish kind of super hyper-confident character who's trying to find out what's going on and he's kind of playing mind games with uh, with Jericho and everything like that. I, you know, that aspect of the film, I really enjoyed it. I I, I feel like it's not, everything doesn't quite come together um, the way it should, but there, there are some great moments. There's a scene where they're, they've are they got the Enigma machine and they've kind of figured out a way to f- crack the, whatever the, the key word is that will give them that day's uh entry into into the code and and they have to risk a whole convoy just so they can get the communications from the germans and and sort of triangulate the the answer to to what they need to know and it, there's some real tension in that scene as well and and then
0: sort of the camaraderie but also the competition amongst the uh, the code
1: breakers is is very well depicted as well.
0: Yeah, and there's there are a bunch of really nerdy math geeks and I appreciated that this like war movie is based around these very sort of uh, self-conscious characters. Um you know, and I think full marks to MVP here. Tom Stoppard, who once again manages to make juicy and compelling what could potentially have been a dustier piece. Um, his adaptation of, of Le Carre's The Russia House is a favorite of mine. Oh, yeah, that's so, a great thriller. So that's part of what I like about this film. Um, and, you know, yeah, as you mentioned, Apted... Um, John Barry's final film score. Uh, Dugray Scott is a bit of a sullen presence. Every time I see him, I'm reminded that he, if he hadn't heard himself playing the villain in Mission Impossible 2, he would have been the actor to play Wolverine. And <laughs> Hugh Jackman, we may never have known. Uh, and that would have made a very different world in the superhero genre, I think. Um, I mean, I could see how Scott could be threatening, but he just seems a little beaten down here with his sort of coffee-stained eyes and suggestion of mental illness. But everyone around him really sparks. Um, And, uh, yeah, I I really liked – and I really like Saffron Burroughs, who's wildly glamorous in this, as she's meant to be. Um, She recently showed up in the new season of Westworld, and I hadn't seen her in a long time, but she's great. Uh, And and as you mentioned, Jeremy Northam uh, is awesome. He's doing kind of an Errol Flynn or Cary Grant impersonation. as he's Like he stepped out of a movie that was made when this is set. So, yeah, you may have trouble finding Enigma. I think you might be able to rent it but uh I'm happy to have it on in my library on d v d so you know you know get in touch and maybe I'll loan it to you <laughs> <laughs> all right, so here we are on Lends Me Your Ears. Stephen and I are talking about. World War II or Second World War, depending on where you are, uh, <laughs> thrillers, and uh, we're now moving on to three wartime thrillers actually made during the war, and it's, it does amaze me that films actually got made, given the, the the way resources were being used and stretched in order to fight this enormous world, well, World War. Um, I, I just, I just, it stuns me that quality feature films are still being released, and and they were made being made about what was actually happening at the time like that's that's it's still the the factory of of film you know is kind of astounding to me but anyway let's let's get going on this and we'll talk about our first one which uh we watched called contraband aka blackout thankfully Stephen, this is one you had on dvd and it's a powell and pressburger film now the great british filmmaking team we've talked about them before on our podcast but do you want to say anything about this this film and and like um you know and about why you chose it
1: yeah it's a terrific movie it's um you know it, it's uh It's the second collaboration by Paul and Pressburger. The the only second time they worked together. Um, The the film they made before this was called "The Spy in Black," and it was uh, starring Conrad Veidt, who also stars here. And it's um, it's basically about um, that was about I think a U boat captain. The U boat gets disabled somewhere off the coast of Scotland, and he has to go ashore and kind of maintain his cool during the First World War. It's a First World War sort of espionage thriller on uh, native soil kind of thing whereas this is actually you know in the in the heat of, of the second world war and um yeah it's it's uh, it's got a great lead performance by conrad vight who most people uh would know from maybe from his early silent film days he was uh, the somnambulist the sleepwalker in the cabinet of dr caligari Back in the nineteen twenties in Germany, um, but he also plays uh, the lead Nazi in Casablanca, a little film you may have heard of. And <laughs> that,
0: that's the thing that sort of shocked me was I always think of him as German, and I guess as half a Dane, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm buying his Danish accent. Yeah, here. it's a little sketchy, but <laughs> but you know, I didn't know also that he died before the world w- the war was over. He had a heart attack while playing golf in Hollywood in April nineteen forty three. I had no idea that that's where his life ended.
1: Well, you know, just like Bing Crosby, if you're going to go. Go, go on the golf, golf. course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair actually enough. I, I don't think I knew that he died that that young because that yeah. you know, it doesn't seem very old but um you know he, he he was as a German actor of course who was also hated the Nazi regime, you know, he got a lot of roles playing bad Germans at this time but but it's it's actually kind of fun to see him playing the hero. Uh, in a Second World War film. not something he got to do a whole lot of. And in this case, he's Captain Hans Andersen, uh, the Danish sea captain, uh, who uh, basically is uh, his freighter, the Helvig, is kind of stuck in quarantine while the customs officials check it out. Uh, I think maybe Denmark might have been neutral at this point i think that's war?
0: right yeah it's set in, it's it's set in 1939 november yeah. even though it was made in 1940 and yeah the the danish freighter i guess is along going along the english coast on the way to denmark where it stopped and he, they have to deal with all this bureaucracy and and uh, captain anderson is is pretty perturbed by this
1: yeah and and so it turns out he's got a couple of agents uh, aboard his ship uh you know as as they kind of worry that uh german agents are going back and forth on um on the neutral ships, uh, neutral countries, uh, ships. And, uh, they've taken a couple of the, the, the uh, passes that allow you to go ashore. And so he, uh, basically sneaks ashore to track these down and, uh, gets caught up in this kind of subterfuge in the, in, in the nighttime world of, uh, blackout London, uh, where there are fifth columnists and, and uh, Nazi spy cells seemingly lurking around every corner, as it turns out, and uh, and 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 basically, uh, it's it's one of those thrillers. It's kind of Hitchcocky, and I guess in a way, uh, it's sort of like the Thirty Nine Steps of The Lady Vanishes, one of those classic uh, Hitchcock thrillers from the time. And Paul and Pressburger would soon kind of get away from this mode, but. But they work very well in this in this uh, kind of classic thriller mode. I mean, they, they would, you know, their later films, things like The Canterbury Tale and The Red Shoes, you know, would become much more, um, much more poetic, much more cinematic in an, their own kind of unique way. But uh, but but when they're just firing in all cylinders, delivering straight up entertainment, they do a really great job of it. And 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 Veet is is such um such a compelling character and, and actor, uh, you know, and we just don't know what's going to happen where. You know, different dangers are lurking around every corner and every warehouse and and uh, basement that he happens to wander into.
0: Yeah, it's a uh, well contraband oh, or A.K.A. blackout, depending on where you are. This this is a film that had two at least two titles. is really quite bizarre. It's a strange film. I guess I would expect it to be one of the Coen brothers favorites. If I had to guess, I don't know if it is, I don't know if even if they've seen it, but my suspicion is that they would love it just for the tone. Um, It's this bizarrely ironic tone. It's spiked with moments of absurd comedy. Uh, It's an especially wordy script concerned with a lot of incidental detail about ships and freight. Uh, Just the kind of thing you might find in a Coen brothers film. Um, And you know, for instance, they, one character, two characters are played by one actor, which is another thing that I <laughs> thought was really strange. A chef in London who happens to be the brother of Anderson's first officer, uh, also played by Hay Petrie, both of them. And that's that seemed like an odd choice. And then there's a really weird stage show right in the middle of the third act. A group of men singing, Do You Know the Muff- Muffin Man, <laughs> while wearing pints of beer on their heads. And then there's a fight in a room full of busts of Neville Chamberlain. Uh, you know, it's just so odd. And Conrad Vite, I mean, like I mentioned, my association with him is Casablanca, and he is the ostensible... The hero here, but he's so craggy and kind of grim. You know, he he's certainly not a swashbuckler, uh, despite the fact that there's this maritime kind of connection with his him being a sea captain. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's so curious. I enjoyed watching this movie, but I I can't even compare it to really <laughs> anything because it's so odd.
1: It is odd, and it's just a series of odd set pieces along the way. I, the, I love the scenes in the Danish restaurant that the uh, that's run by the twin brother of. The, the first mate on board the ship, uh, the hate Petrie character. Uh, you know, th- th- those scenes are, are, are
0: terrific. And, and, you know, when they're singing their national song. Yeah, uh, it's like, and, and they're all, like, learning how to sing it, and they're singing along all the waiters. I just, yeah, that's a great moment. And, and there's great chemistry between
1: uh, Conrad Veidt and uh, Mrs. Sorensen, played by the great Valerie Hobson, who's a familiar face in British film from the time, and, and where she's, uh, you know, she's, she's an agent, but, you know, he's clearly... Doesn't trust her and and isn't, doesn't want to let her out of his his sight and and then she's working with another character, a theatrical agent, Mr. Pigeon, um, who's played by another character actor, uh, Esmond Knight, who shows up in a number of Powell and Pressburger films. It's it's great that they have their kind of stock uh, character, stock group of of actors, and then we get we get the the German. Uh, Agents that eventually wind up on their tail, and uh, they're they're called the Brothers Grimm. <laughs> you know that's what they decide to call themselves. So you've got you've got basically Hans Christian Anderson and the Brothers Grimm kind of chasing after each other. Just another example of kind of the the raw humor. I mean, this this film is meant to be propaganda. It's it's meant to kind of warn viewers that there are dangers lurking around corners, and you know, loose lips sink ships, and that there are enemy agents with British accents uh, operating. In the field, uh, you know, in London and and beyond, and and, uh, you know that was kind of the main reason for the film. But but Pal and Pressburger kind of throw. The propaganda thing out the window and it's really more about telling an entertaining tale full of really oddball characters.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. It is oddball. Uh, now another film that we watched Went the Day Well from 1942 is available on Hoopla, the free library service that uh, people can access here in uh, in Halifax if you're here listening to this. It's inspired by a Graham Greene story directed by Alberto Cavalcanti. And this was also, I gather, supposed to be propaganda. This is one I, I enjoyed, but I felt like it was a little more down the line as propaganda. It was a little more conventional than the Powell and Pressburger film. We get an introduction breaking the fourth wall, a man telling the story of what happened in this sleepy English village, Bramley End, one time during the war. Something that was kept secret until after the war, where Germans took it, took the town, and but they are now buried in the churchyard. Uh, so... Yeah, so that's uh, what the the gist is. And we discover that, uh, you know, there was a possibility of a German invasion. And, um, you know, this ab- local absent-minded characters, the uh, local oddities uh, in this British town are all present and very English. And then the British soldiers are supposedly passing through and they need billeting. But they are, in fact, Germans planning an invasion. Now, why they chose this particular corner of England to, like, make their first, you know, entry point into this invasion is a bit of a mystery, but, you know, whatever, the film doesn't seem too concerned about it, and so I guess we shouldn't be either. Uh, there It does have a streak of paranoia that is slow to build, this sort of vein of horror, even, that this green and pleasant land would be disrupted by these forces, um, and, and not all the plotting makes much sense, but it is, is surprisingly violent once things yeah. start to happen. A man gets his hand cut off by an axe and a lady gets skewered by a bayonet and you see all this blood on people. I mean, this is stuff that you, I wouldn't, I'd be surprised to see on a film before like the 1960s, but it's, it's right here.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of this movie. This is like the third time I've seen it. In fact, the first time I saw it was at a film festival uh, in upstate New York in Syracuse at Cinefest. And I got to see it on a a 16 millimeter print on a nice big screen with a packed audience. And people really responded to this movie. To see this movie with an audience was really something else. And it it was, I could almost imagine people watching it in the 1940s and being really, you know, riled up by the thought of, of, you know about these Nazis coming on British soil, and and uh, just the the outrage that people would have felt as they watched this in British theaters, and and the the film's a big hit at the time. Like Cavalcanti was is a, is a great director, and and really um, maybe not so appreciated uh, these days. But he made a string of fine films, and he made that um, uh, not Night of Fear, but the, the, there's a, that British uh, anthology movie with the evil ventriloquist dummy and he <laughs> directed that particular uh sequence one of the most famous uh, scenes and uh, sequences in british horror movies with michael redgrave but um you know here there are, there are moments of terror and horror I- in this film as as the uh, the villagers you know fight back and and um you know the the germans pull all these dirty tricks uh to kind of try and keep them from getting the word out to the the forces around the town that uh, that they've been invaded and uh the town is being held hostage. And, and, and I, I just found it really effective. And, and just the, the, the different ways that, uh, you know, they, they kind of clue in that these, uh, these guys aren't what they seem, you know, by writing their numbers in the continental manner. And one of the kids finds a bar of German chocolate in, in a kit bag of one of the soldiers and that kind of thing. And, of course, the one guy, the radio expert, doesn't speak any English. So, you know, the people are wondering
0: why he's just mute, all, doesn't say anything all yeah, the time. Yeah, they, they think, well, maybe he's a Pole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i don't didn't like it as much as you did Stephen, and i can understand what you're saying about it and how much excitement it must have generated to and also to tap into that fear that brits must have had at the time like i could i can get all that but i just found it uh i found it a little prescribed it's like oh of course every single you know the the townspeople will come together and they will fight and 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 you know get and with the help of actual british soldiers will defeat the terrible germans and and this is all the ways in which they could do it when you're being smart and and clever and i i just it felt a, it felt a little bit yeah um, it it wasn't all it didn't all make sense to me. For instance, one of the ladies from the village has a has a friend visiting from out of town for Sunday tea. And the soldiers, basically the German soldiers, pretending to be Brits, allow her access to sit alongside the couch while they go through the charade of it. Of course, the local villager tries to slip the lady a message in her coat. Um, it just doesn't make any sense that they wouldn't either hold her once she was in the village and try and keep her there or kill her. Um, You know, there's a lot of this kind of uh, subterfuge that I I don't quite understand what they were trying to to do. But, but, you know, I... I, but I, when the action d- does begin, especially in the third act, that's when I thought it really worked. And, uh, and you know, uh, the, as, as we mentioned, the violence is, is quite surprising for, for a film from this era. And I was, I was struck by how much it resembled another film we're going to talk about in our third section. Yes. The Eagle Has Landed, which, you know, was made 35 years later. But it, it clearly borrowed a lot of plot points from Went the Day Well.
1: Yeah, it, it 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 does and and uh I I'm pretty sure that one was a, an influence on the Jack Higgins novel, but we'll be talking about that in our th- in our third segment. We uh we do have another film to talk about from this period and uh we were talking about North Africa earlier in the uh, in the show and and we're actually going to go there in film with Five Graves to Cairo directed by uh, Billy Wilder and uh written with his uh frequent collaborator at that time in the in the mid 40s uh Charles Brackett they wrote uh many fine films together and uh, it's based on a play by Lajos Biro um basically about um a uh a british soldier who is uh sort of has to pretend to be a uh an egyptian servant while uh he's trapped behind enemy lines and of course uh some uh, major, uh, some major German officers are uh, stuck in this uh, in this hotel with some vital information that he wants to try and sneak back out to the Allies. So um, it's it's not maybe a typical Billy Wilder kind of film. It's more of a, a straight up uh, thriller, you know, wartime action picture. But there is a lot of that Wilder wit in the screenplay, and of course we have the great Eric von Stroheim as uh, as Rommel, um, the the German general who is. Uh, you know had such a successful campaign up until uh he didn't until Montgomery got the better of him <laughs> at uh, El Alamine I think was the battle where that uh, the tide was turned
0: yeah, this is a film I didn't know, I don't actually, my war, war knowledge uh, is a little bit thin on the African front. Um, but I, I did do some reading after I watched this film, and I appreciated how much they sort of strung actual facts and actual events into this story. I think if you are a fan or are interested in the history of of the, the war in North Africa, this well, this actually is pretty illuminating, but uh, yeah, it was made in 43. It's on the Criterion Channel, uh, but it's set in 42, the British Eighth Army not doing well in North Africa, and the Germans are pushing them towards Cairo and the Suez. Uh, and yes, this, this British um, soldier, play, uh, his name, his character's name is J.J. J. Bramble. Uh, he's played by, uh, Stephen, tell me if I'm saying his his name right here. Is it Franchotone?
1: Franchotone, that's it, yes. Um,
0: so he is... He sounds just like an American, even though he's supposed to be a Brit. But anyway, he gets into this desert hotel, as you mentioned, and he has to pretend to be a, sort of one of the, the people working there. Um, the, the hotel owner, Farid, played by Akim Tamirov, uh, and his maid, Moosh, played by Ann Baxter, hide him when the Germans arrive. And that's when he has to impersonate this waiter. Um And uh, then it becomes, you know, you can tell the the play roots because it mostly a single location story of them all in this hotel as as the uh, this sort of espionage goes on. It is there are Hollywood conventions here that I have always struggled with Uh, pet peeves of mine. You know, how are we supposed to suspend our disbelief around language? Uh, you know, the Germans are sometimes speaking German. They're sometimes speaking English. What language is is our our spy speaking? Is he speaking English? Is he speaking Egyptian? Um, it's all a little bit mysterious. And then there's a... Uh, Fortunio Bonanova as Italian general, who was a very outrageous character, he's sort of an unhappy ally of the Germans. He also speaks English con- you know, conveniently. Um, this is the sort of stuff I know that audiences of the era would have just overlooked and not even thought about, but I can't help but wonder, like they could but have he tried He sings to in Italian. It. He sings in Italian, exactly. <laughs> Frequently. Um I really did like Stroheim as as Rommel. I think he is he's really good in this. Um but um yeah, I didn't think Tone was terribly good in the lead. His uh, Bramble's efforts to seduce Moosh are just creepy while Farid is a stereotype of the bumbling Arab, not to mention sort of a brown face he's wearing because Temirov is actually Armenian um, which, you know, is a little bit hard to take. Uh, but uh, yeah, and some of the plot stuff is... Uh, I mean, did... did uh, unless you can tell me otherwise, I couldn't find any <laughs> actual basis to this, but that the Germans... Pretended to be archaeologists to bury supplies so that when they they invaded Egypt, they could get these supply dumps and and like you know unearth them and then they would have gas and ammunition. I, I yeah, don't that's know. basically it.
1: The, well, of course, uh, the five graves to Cairo, the five graves are the su- buried supply dumps that they've uh, stretched out across the map, which is an- another whole plot point that uh, doesn't make a lot of sense because because yeah. um, because I, I basically they're 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 according they're buried under the five letters of Egypt on the map. But of course the Germans don't spell it the same way. <laughs> you know, they don't spell it in English. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, you know, so so again you get into that language barrier and it's like, well that and would they be using the same map and to begin with? Um so you kinda have to take that on faith, I guess. Uh as with a lot of things in Hollywood films from this time. But it's it's still a pretty clever plan, you know, that 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 they've uh, you know, knowing in advance what was gonna happen in North Africa that they You know, made preparations to uh, secure, uh, you know, ammo and and other supplies uh, buried out in the desert, according to the coordinates on the map uh, where the letters of Egypt are. But um, and uh, spoiler alert, but (laughs) it it Uh it doesn't take that long to figure all this stuff out. But uh, yeah, I. I don't know. I don't get too wrapped up in, in that. I think with a lot of Hollywood films, you go for the performances and and uh, you know some of the more outlandish set pieces. I mean, there's a great attack scene um, later in the film. And, and yeah, Franchotone was probably not Billy Wilder's first choice to uh, to play this character. In fact, I don't know that he was ever anyone's first choice to play a character. But you know, he has kind of a garrulous charm, I guess, and he's handsome enough. And I think he was married to Joan Crawford. For a while, wow. if I'm not mistaken. But, um, you know, and, and I, I've enjoyed him in other things, but I, I don't know how many people out there have a favorite Francho Tone film. Or <laughs> we won't like be that.
0: doing a Francho Tone episode. No, I Red don't Spheres think so. Anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, I didn't like him very much. There were parts of the film I thought were okay, but uh, I did like the ending, which has a sort of a grim, downbeat twist that I appreciated. Uh, it's quite bittersweet, it, 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 with an accent on the bitter.
1: Yeah, it, it it does have that uh, that kind of tone, and and Ann Baxter is very good here. Well, most people probably know her from um, probably like all about all about Eve. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, the, that's where I know her the from theatrical too. comedy of manners, um, and that's that's probably her best known role. But she's very good here as as Mouche. I mean, I I don't know how French she uh, she appears uh, to be here, but uh, you know, she's she's got a lot of resentment uh, towards both sides of of the equation. You know, she feels like uh, you know, people were abandoned by the British. She hates the Germans, but the British, she feels, are you know, kind of left them behind, like like at Dunkirk, as she says at one point, which probably is a real sore nerve with the British uh, tank officer. Uh, and uh, and and she's you know, she's 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 got um, you know a fair bit of the dramatic heavy lifting to do. More certainly more so than Franchotone does. Uh, and uh, you know, and and she gets very upset when he. Kills a German officer who was going to help her brother get out of you know maybe he was maybe he wasn't but you know she has a brother who's in a in a prisoner camp prisoner of war camp and supposedly he was going to use some influence to, to help uh, help his situation and then that goes down the tubes when uh, when uh, Schwelger gets uh, gets offed um, to preserve uh, Bramble's uh, secret identity I guess so uh, th- there's a lot of different uh, elements at play. That, uh, that, that keep it fairly intriguing as it goes along. And, and it's got that crackling dialogue as well, the, the Brackett and Wilder um, dialogue that I'm, I'm sure uh, improves on the material It was the original play.
0: Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's
1: about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. Food Podcast
0: has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our
1: stories with you. Welcome back to Lindsey Rears for our third and final segment as we take a look at Second World War thrillers. And uh we've uh we've looked at some some fairly recent ones uh Operation Mincemeat and Enigma that look at the kind of the the Bletchley Circle uh the coding game and then we had uh, some films from the the 1940s themselves um which were made while the war was raging and while there were real concerns and uh now we're going to go to the 1970s where there there was a flood of second world war films uh being made in the 70s it seemed like uh, things like a, a bridge too far and Mid, and, midway and, uh,
0: midway and the battle of the bulge they're all like they're all like big epics though eh? with with a huge casts
1: yeah and uh it it uh there was also uh in the 60s there was a, i just actually I just watched it the other day um was uh in harm's way the kind of post pearl harbor story of navy intrigue in the pacific with john wayne and kirk douglas and but yeah big splashy epics torah 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 mm, came out right, in the 70s sure. um and uh You know, the big uh, battle of Britain is another one, I think. Uh, big splashy stories full of all star casts and and uh, lots of familiar faces showing up for like one or two scenes. And and uh, I'm guessing that goes back to the longest day, the story of uh, the D Day invasion, which was a huge hit in the early 60s. Um, with that kind of star studded cast, you know, more stars than you can shake a stick at, and uh, and uh, so the personal stories kind of get lost in these films because they're trying to stage the big battles and the big campaigns and and shove as many characters in front of your face as they possibly can and uh, and there are there are a few films that uh, that go for the more personal the more intimate stories uh, that uh, might have come out of the the war and and uh, the Eagle Has Landed is is uh, directed by the great John Sturgis, maybe not on his A game at this point in his career um, you know certainly known for things like uh, the Magnificent Seven and uh, The Dirty Dozen. A Great Escape. A great oh,
0: escape. Ice Station Zebra. I think we've talked about that on our Submarine yeah, episode.
1: exactly. So, <laughs> you know, he, he was good at kind of handling big, meaty, multicast action kind of films. Uh, and and here we have a, a story based on the Jack Higgins novel and a script by Tom Mankiewicz. Uh, you know, pretty good screenwriter. Also wrote a couple of James Bond movies, mm-hmm. oddly enough. Everything uh, comes
0: back. Every road leads back <laughs> to Bond.
1: And uh, sort of like went the day well. This is about a plan to... Uh, Infiltrate a British village in Norfolk, I believe, and um, where uh, Princeton, of oh, Princeton uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill is going to be on kind of a, a week's holiday, you know, taking a break from the war, I guess. And their plan is initially to kidnap him and bring him back to Germany and then hold him for ransom, I guess, to to get some sort of terms from the from the British government. And uh, so this uh, this scheme is cooked up uh, by. Uh, I believe is it um is it uh not Himmler. Uh I'm trying to remember who's playing you who now in this in this version of the film. But but um, it is Himmler, actually. Oh, Don, it is Himmler.
0: Donald Pleasance, yeah.
1: Donald Pleasance is Himmler. So mm-hmm. we, so he gets uh, Robert Duval is kind of put in charge of this operation. And um in an eye patch. Yes, <laughs> wearing an eye patch, why not? Uh eye patches always look make you look more evil. And he, he basically puts together a squad um head by Colonel Kurt Steiner played by Michael Caine, uh who um you know is is basically a uh the leader of a, a German paratrooper outfit who's known to be a kind of a a good man with a with a kind of a sneaky behind enemy lines operations and uh even though he really has no love for the Nazi regime because as we learn early on that you know he gets very upset at uh you know Germans loading innocent uh Jews onto a train somewhere in Poland I guess and um you know, he almost gets court-martialed over trying to, to save a, a woman from one of the concentration camp trains, and uh, you know, and the German officer in charge turns around and shoots her as the train's pulling away. So, uh, you know, that kind of you know, he, he, Michael Caine has one of his more emotional outbursts. You know, after seeing good good men die in battle and watching German soldiers shoot a girl for sport, that's not why he's fighting this war. Yeah, apparently. there's definitely good so good Germans and bad Germans yes. in this film. So that so. The plan is to, to basically go in, pretend to be Polish soldiers, uh, you know, in training, uh, in, in a training mission or a training exercise before they go off to back to fight the Germans. And uh, and they also recruit uh, an, a member of the IRA, played by Donald Sutherland, who just happens to be in Berlin. Um, lecturing at, at, a, at a university in in Berlin, and he's going to be kind of their inside man
0: in this village. <laughs> he's yeah. posing as a, a marsh warden, I guess. And, yeah, uh, his his accent is appalling, but he does have a lot of fun with this character. I think Donald Sutherland fans, I'm sure there's many out there, should check this out if they haven't seen it. Uh, yeah,
1: yes. I think he's taking it about as seriously as he took his role in Kelly's Heroes, mm-hmm. where he yep. played the long-haired hippie tank commando. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just like... Just, that that could not possibly exist, but here we go uh so so don at that 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 great sort of post mash part of his career where he's just you know taking these roles and just doing them for a for a lark, i guess and and uh and then you know he uh begins this romance with Molly Pryor, played by Jenny Agaday um, uh, as he's laying the groundwork for the uh, German squadron to come in and uh basically infiltrate this village um you know they don't necessarily want to lay siege to it like in went the day well you know they just want to be kind of on the low but low down and and kind of just uh, maintain a, a low key presence until it's time to kidnap Churchill. But uh, things don't go quite as planned, of course, as you might expect, and uh, things get a little more dramatic than uh, than they had anticipated.
0: Yeah, and, and I really like the the love affair between Liam Devlin, the Donald Sutherland character, and uh, the the woman played by Jenny Agutter, because she's she's um, you know it suggests that. Her passion for him and her love for him might actually, you know, affect his uh, his commitment to this mission and to the war and all of that. And I actually appreciate that little bit of romance in the middle of all of this. It just you talked about these a lot of these big budget, uh, sprawling cast films being a little impersonal. This that felt a little more personal. And I liked it, even though, you know, uh, you know, I, I I don't know if I entirely believed it or they didn't spend all their time there. Um, we also get on the Allies side, American soldiers played by a fresh faced treat Williams, and then Larry Hagman as that ridiculous colonel who's desperate to see some action, Uh, even Jeff Conaway in a small role. I thought it was weird to see stalwart British character actor Anthony Quayle as a German officer. Um, But I overall, I I mean, I like The Eagle Has Landed. I like this cast. There's it's impossible not to like them. I mean, Michael Caine attempting a suggestion of a German accent is is pretty funny um, and entertaining. But it's a bit slow, especially in the opening act. It, fo- it doesn't foster a lot of suspense through the middle, the Nazi team setting up in this village waiting for Churchill to arrive and, you know, Sutherland and Kane charming everyone around them. Um, you know, I did like that the film, the tension here is the film basically has its audience rooting for a group of Nazis trying to kidnap or kill maybe Winston Churchill. That's an interesting kind of audience manipulation going on. Um, Uh, I did have a little trouble with the sort of old school honor between soldiers dynamic. It just feels so anachronistic. Lots of saluting, even when it's an enemy officer. It's, It's definitely a relic of another age. Um, I like the action sequences when they finally arrive, um, and I really enjoyed Jean Marsh as a plant in the village. Yes, Jean a, Marsh is terrific. And she's a South African looking for revenge on the Brits for her family having put been put in concentration camps when she was younger. Um, and she gets to shoot Larry Hagman in the head, so, you know, there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I did feel like it was too long and too slow going, and... Uh, I thought that all the whistling on the soundtrack when we spent time with <laughs> with Sutherland's Irish character was really hokey. Uh, funny enough, though, it did make me think of the Tom Cruise picture, Valkyrie, another wartime thriller which is based on actually a true story of a group of German soldiers who plotted to kill Hitler. Um, you know, we could, we could cheer for them, no problem. You know, again, a, a film with good Germans and bad Germans.
1: Yeah, it is kind of an odd thing that, you know— It's it's an intriguing story and there's a lot of suspense, but you can't really cheer for the main characters because they're Nazis and they're trying to kidnap Hitler. Uh, Sorry, Churchill. And um, but it's you know I I guess uh, that was the nature of the novel. I think the novel was uh, the Jack Higgins novel. I think was pretty popular um, at the time, so it was kind of a natural thing that it would get uh, turned into a film. From what I gather, uh, Sturges' investment in this uh, material was not that high, so. Uh, sometimes the film making seems a little more automatic or, you know, kind of rote. And, um, you know, I think you do feel it from time to time in the way that some of the action scenes are staged and so on. And, and cer- certainly, uh he lets Harry, Larry Hagman get away with a way over the top performance uh, as the kind of doofusy Texas general uh-huh. or Colonel, I guess, um, in charge of this, uh, this American platoon and, and, I Feel like that should have been reined in a little bit, and it seems like Sturgeon just didn't seem to care too much. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I think it was his last feature film, so you know, he was basically just thinking about getting back home and going fishing. Once, yeah. once uh, filming it dropped, I don't think he had any involvement in the editing or anything like that. So, it's not exactly an, a- an auteur film, but uh, but it you know, it is a fun adventure for what it is, and it's kind of interesting to think about the possibility that something like this could have seemed plausible at one time
0: uh one more film to talk about Stephen. before we're we're done our world war ii thrillers here on Les Mirrors, and that's hanover street from 1979 written and directed by peter hyams director of a lot of you know pretty good science fiction genre pictures including capricorn one which we've talked about 2010 the year they make contact outland running scared um time cop uh so this one stars harrison ford who went on from star wars to to be in a picture called Heroes and then Force 10 from Navrone and then this one right before Apocalypse Now and the Frisco Kid it's almost like he wasn't quite a minted star yet but you know casting agents were trying him out in various leading man roles um, here he's David Halloran, a pilot from Chicago in London during the Blitz. One day he on the street, he meets a nurse, Margaret Sellinger, played by Leslie Ann Down. And they meet the most ridiculous meet-cute ever, <laughs> that I don't buy for a second. And then they spend the day drinking tea and falling in love, but she won't tell him her name. And then the bombs start to fall, and he realizes that she's married. And it's... It's all very romantic and very genuine Harlequin material. The love scenes are cheesy. Uh, the John Barry score, bringing John Barry back into this, probably the most syrupy of his career, but it suits the material. Um, I actually quite enjoyed it, especially when Christopher Plummer shows up as Margaret's secret agent husband. And it throws in the the plot, throws Halloran and, and uh, the husband together on. Uh, on across enemy lines and becomes this weird buddy movie kind of in the second half um it's not a film that has a lot of great reviews uh, but i thought it was was pretty great in its own weird sad romantic way um uh, i think it's on is it on uh, amazon prime i yes, think it's is on where prime. you can find yep. it uh, also canadian actor shane rimmer is in it he's a great character actor who i've always liked and william hootkins who was Red Six Porkins in Star Wars, uh, and Major Eaton in Raiders. Uh, anyway, uh, but what did you make of it, Stephen? Oh, I enjoyed it. it. It's fairly
1: cornball in the way it handles the romance and everything like that. But I like the camaraderie of the the bomber crew. Uh, Richard Mazer is always a fun character actor, and and certainly once uh, Harrison Ford, you know, Harrison Ford playing a wise cracking pilot. I mean, <laughs> I, I think he could pull off that role. But, uh, but when he, he and Plummer are behind enemy lines, uh, all that stuff uh, is, is great cracking adventure. And, um, and, and they actually have a really nice chemistry together, um, you know, even though, uh, you know, Plummer doesn't know that Ford is romancing his wife and so on and, and their adventures in, in the German headquarters and all that kind of stuff. I, I thought it was really good, solid adventure material with two great stars, uh, you know, at their, at their peak. that's it for another edition of lens me your ears i hope you enjoyed this look at second world war thrillers from recent years and years gone by a lot of great stories uh, there, and uh, there's so many more films that we could have uh, talked about for the show, so maybe maybe another good one will play in theaters or on streaming soon We you can dig up some other films like Alfred Hitchcock's uh, and things like that, and, and uh, I hope you enjoyed these, and look out uh, for some of these movies, and uh, if you want to look out for us you can find us on Facebook, we have a Facebook page and also a Twitter account at uh, Lesbian and of course you can find me on Twitter at
0: NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E I'm also on Twitter uh, by the handle of my uh, my blog, flaw in the iris. And of course,
1: as always, we want to thank the folks at CKDU for airing us every other Tuesday at 5 p.m. and the Village Soundcast Network who put all the final production touches on the show and make it sound so great. We hope you enjoyed it all, and we'll talk to you next time.